Thank you for tuning in to GCN Talk Live Network Radio, America's number one Jewish program. The Talk Line Communications Network proudly presents its flagship program, Talk Line, America's number one Jewish program, the pulse beat of the Jewish community with Zeb Brenner. And now, your host, Zeb Brenner. And welcome to another edition of Talkline. I'm Zev Brenner. Very pleased to be here with you on WOR 710 on the AM dial. Just a reminder that we're here with you on the radio. We're almost every night during the week except for on Shabbos. So we are on, of course, tonight on WOR 710 on the AM dial. But weeknights, Monday through Wednesday nights, we're from 7 p.m. till 9 p.m. on WSNR 620 a.m. It's next door to 710. WSNR is 620 a.m. On, on Thursday nights, we're from 7 p.m. till 11 p.m. on WSNR. And Saturday nights, we're all Jewish, all Saturday nights, beginning at 9 p.m., going all the way till 4 a.m. When we're now with you on the radio, you can catch us 24 hours a day at talklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour day listen line, 641-741-0389. If you have a cell phone, you can download the Jewish radio app. We're a part of that. We're part of Naki Radio. Wherever you are, you can certainly catch us. Tonight, we have a very special broadcast for you. Always enjoy having Nat Lewin. He is one of the top lawyers in the country. He's been a champion for advocating First Amendment rights, especially those affecting the Jewish community. And tonight, we're also have him joined by his daughter, Lisa, who is a powerhouse on her own. And together, they're in Lewin and Lewin. But uh, they are really, we're going to talk about Jerusalem being officially recognized, what that means. You know, people thought the embassy was to be in an endo, but it was a lot more than that. We'll talk about that and some other issues that affect all of us. You don't want to miss our very special broadcast. We are America's only Jewish radio programs on regular broadcast radio on the Internet and digital platforms. We begin right after these messages. If you have been suffering with fatigue, pain, gastrointestinal problems, anxiety, brain fog, weight gain, and have been to doctors who haven't found the answers, the Kelman Wellness Center can help. Best-selling medical author Dr. Raphael Kelman, a holistic medical doctor and internist, specializes in unexplained complex health issues. Dr. Kelman finds the root cause of your illness. Through advanced testing methods and a combination of traditional and holistic healing methods, he has helped thousands of people, and he can help you too. Call the Kelman Wellness Center at 833-MD-HELP-ME for more information about how Dr. Kelman can help you feel your best. 
That's 833-MD-HELP-ME. Learn more about the Kelman Wellness Center at kelmancenter.com. Call now for your free 10-minute consultation. That number again, 833-MD-HELP-ME. That's 833-MD-HELP-ME. Time to squeeze the profits. If you're a business owner, this is for you. It is your birthright to not just survive, but thrive in this and any economic environment through barter. Join thousands of savvy businesses. Visit barterjuice.com to unlock the secret of how the power of barter can help you get dental, legal, jewelry, web, vacations, furniture, and hundreds of thousands of products and services without paying cash. Learn how barter can transform your business and your life. New book, Barter Juice. You can download the free ebook or audiobook. Barter Juice is now also available in Hebrew and Yiddish. Barterjuice.com. COVID-19 cases are on the rise in our community. To help prevent the spread of COVID-19, stay home and only leave for essentials if you are sick. When you go out, practice physical distancing. Wear a face covering. Wash your hands often with soap and water. Avoid large indoor gatherings of people. Get tested. You will not be fined for testing positive. For more information or to find the testing site, call 311. Have you been worried that your child's college preparation is suffering due to the pandemic? Online learning can be especially difficult for students preparing for the SAT and ACT, as these tests present unique challenges. Luckily, Beyond the Test Tutoring and College Prep is here to help your child succeed. While many educators have struggled adapting to online learning, our educators have been tutoring online since 2013 and have mastered an effective and enriching program to help students succeed by teaching them the best strategies and tips for taking the test. Beyond the Test's approach is tried and true and has resulted in 100% five-star reviews for our program. Our incredible program is taught by the owners to provide your child the very best our company has to offer. We know these uncertain times have been difficult for everyone. However, Beyond the Test Tutoring and College Prep is fully prepared to help your child with any and all needs to make sure they do their very best on these exams. For personal services, please call 856-240-0728 or visit us online at beyondthetest.com. Did you ever consider hosting your own radio or television show? We can help you get on the air. Talkline Communications works with broadcasters as well as with TV and radio stations in New York and nationwide that lease time, all at competitive rates. We work with doctors, lawyers, and other professionals, as well as with ethnic broadcasters. For more information about hosting your own radio or TV show, please call 212-769-1925, 212-769-1925. And out of New York, call 1-866-MY-TV-SHOW. That's 1-866-MY-TV-SHOW. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brennis. Always a treat, always a privilege to have Nat Lewin. He is certainly one of the top lawyers in the country. He's been a champion for human rights. He's fought so many Hanukkah menorah cases to have the right to Hanukkah menorahs put on public property. You name it, he's been there. And uh, he's together with his daughter, Eliza Lewin, who joins us together with her father. They're with Lewin and Lewin. But Eliza has also... Uh, been involved with being the president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights under law, a nonprofit legal advocacy organization that utilizes law to fight anti-Semitism, especially on campus, doing an exceptional job. So, father and daughter, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you, as you say. 
Thank you. So before we get down, we want to talk about Jerusalem and some of the things that people might not be realized is you're probably following what's happening with the legal maneuvers of the president and what's going with the courts. From a legal perspective, how do you view what's going on? I, I view the possibility that there has been some form of uh, fraud involved as being a very substantial possibility. Unfortunately, the uh, legal representatives of President Trump have not done the best job in presenting that evidence to the public. Uh, The news media are not likely to accept it in any event and will probably censor it. But Mr. Giuliani in his press conference, I thought was very specific about the fact that they have affidavits from people in Michigan and in Pennsylvania who work for the uh, election boards who are ready to testify and signed affidavits that mail-in ballots were sent in the middle of the night, uh, brought in in large quantities, apparently unverified in any way, but nonetheless used to affect the results in those states. Now, if that evidence is there, and I believe, Mr. Giuliani, that he has those affidavits, they would be substantial evidence of fraud. And it just it has to be presented to the public. And maybe the way to do it and I I have suggested it in various public media, is for one state, like the state of Florida or the state of Alabama, to sue another state, like the state of Pennsylvania or the state of Michigan or both, in the Supreme Court of the United States, because the Supreme Court of the United States has original jurisdiction of lawsuits between the states. And the state of Florida can say that its electors' votes are diluted or nullified by violations by the state of Pennsylvania or the state of Michigan. So that would be my recommendation as to how this could be brought to the public in a way that might in some way force the media to report what the evidence actually is. And I think the evidence is probably there. So it should be fought in the media or is just something for the courts to adjudicate because the media is one thing, but the courts should not be subject to whatever the media writes about. But so far it seems that the president has not had very much luck in the courts in various venues. Because the courts, the only places this has been litigated is in the lowest possible courts, lowest state court a federal district court in Pennsylvania. But, uh, you know, there there you have one judge who may or may not be prejudiced in one way or another making a decision. If, in fact, the facts are brought forth before the Supreme Court of the United States, you're right. They should not be affected by the media or by public opinion. But the fact is public opinion is now turning so substantially against President Trump that even Republican senators or governors are calling for him to concede. And that's because of the weight 
of public opinion, not be really because the Supreme Court of the United States or even any appellate court in the United States has ruled against him on the law and the facts. So will it, in your opinion, end up in the Supreme Court or it's not going to make it beyond where it is right now? I think it should end up in the Supreme Court. Back in 2000, I thought it obvious from the moment that the dispute started that it would be resolved by the Supreme Court of the United States, as it ultimately was. The Supreme Court of the United States cannot leave to the courts of Florida or the courts of Pennsylvania or the courts of Michigan who it is who will be the legal president of the United States. That's going to take the Supreme Court of the United States. I would hope that it would be done in an original action in which the evidence would be presented to the Supreme Court of the United States. But at worst, it can be done by the usual process of which there are appeals taken and ultimately an appeal is taken to the Supreme Court of the United States. But if it's too late by then, the Supreme Court of the United States may not be able to issue a decision that would be acceptable to the American public. And ultimately, that's what has to happen. The American public has to accept this. So the clock is ticking. If it's not done in the next couple of weeks, even if he has all the evidence in the world, it will make a difference once the president, once Joe Biden is sworn in as president, is what you're saying. Well, if he's sworn in on January 20th, there's interesting constitutional provisions that affect all this. The 12th Amendment, the 20th Amendment. I mean, uh, this is this is not a simple matter, but it can be resolved by the Supreme Court and the Electoral College if people move quickly and effectively as lawyers. So they have a lot, they have their homework to do, and so far they don't haven't done the best job they could possibly could in this situation. That's true. It's certainly not the best job they possibly could. <laughs> so I, I want to talk Jerusalem, because people said when the, when the president moved the embassy to Jerusalem, that's it. This is, means that the United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But that's not necessarily, that wasn't the case. In fact, you represented a child by the name of Menachem Benjamin Zatovsky, who was born in Jerusalem on October 17, 2002. You took it to court because the United States State Department refused to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. On the passport, it wouldn't say Jerusalem, Israel, it just said Jerusalem. And you were fighting that it should say Jerusalem, Israel. And only was recently that the president and the administration changed that. So tell us what's been happening. I know you and Lisa's been working on that, too. Let me, let me tell you, the best person to tell you that story in full will be Aliza. And I think I will very shortly uh, let her have the microphone to tell you the story. It's not Jerusalem, Israel, by the way. It is the, whether Israel is listed if you're born in Jerusalem. Because as she will explain to you, it's the country in which you're born that's ordinarily list, listed all alone, not the city. The country is listed in the U.S. passport. But before Aliza tells you about the, the case, the Zivotofsky case, I have to tell you the case came to the Supreme Court twice. 
and it is it was i think historic in the sense that the first argument that was presented in the supreme court the first time it came up i argued the case and my partner aliza lewin my daughter sat as second chair for that argument the second time the case came up to the supreme court i sat as second chair and my daughter aliza is the one who presented the oral argument i think it has never before happened in the history of the supreme court that a parent and a child and certainly not a father and daughter have had that lineup that two cases were presented in which the parent argued the first and the offspring sat second chair and in the second case the daughter argued and the father sat as second chair and shit nachas as they say that. tons tons of nachas <laughs> so okay now i think alisa will explain to you what happened with the zivotofsky case so and i will just add to that story that when my father argued his case it was his 28th argument before the supreme court and when i argued mine it was my first supreme court argument um so yes the the story the zivotofsky story and when you talk about Jerusalem, the real issue was not so much that the president moved the embassy to Jerusalem. The underlying question, which was not resolved until just a couple of weeks ago, was the question of whether or not Jerusalem is even in Israel. Because the United States' formal policy has been, since 1948, not to recognize Jerusalem as being in any country, and we're talking about all of Jerusalem, even the part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's sovereignty since 1948. And you could see this position of the United States most clearly in its passport policy. Because as my father pointed out and explained, the United States passport policy is that when you have an American citizen who is born abroad outside of the United States, that person's passport lists just a country of birth as their place of birth. So if you have, for example, two Americans living in Paris and they have a child, that child's U.S. passport would list France as the place of birth, just a country. So if you have an American citizen born in Tel Aviv or Haifa, their passport says Israel. But because the United States policy was not to recognize Jerusalem as being in Israel, for an American citizen born in Jerusalem, the State Department would put Jerusalem instead of Israel, because Jerusalem had no country. And in 2002, three weeks before our client, Menachem Binyamin Zivotofsky, was born, Congress actually passed a law. And that law required the State Department to list Israel as the place of birth on the U.S. passports of any American citizen who requested it or their guardian, right, if it were a child. And when President Bush signed that law, that bill into law, he issued a signing statement that said that he was not going to follow that section of the law because it impermissibly interfered with his, the president's, authority over foreign policy. And that started our case, right, three weeks after that case, uh, after that law was passed, I actually 
when uh, my friends Naomi and Ari Zivotovsky had their third child, their first child born in Israel, was born in Shari Tzedek Hospital, which is in Jerusalem, in the part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's sovereignty since 1948. So when I called them up to wish them a mazel tov, I told them about this new law, and I suggested that they test it when they go to get Menachem's passport. And so they did, and they asked for his passport to list Israel as the place of birth, and the clerks told them it doesn't matter about this new law, it will come back saying Jerusalem, and sure enough, he came back saying Jerusalem, and that is when Menachem Binyamin Zivotovsky, 18 years ago, became Lewin and Lewin's youngest pro bono client. Because we filed a suit back then to try and get the State Department to follow this law. And it went through such a long period of time, right? It uh, took years it and years and years. Years and years, and up and down, and as you heard, to the Supreme Court twice. And what happened is, my father, he won his round in the Supreme Court. His round had to do with whether or not the Supreme Court or the courts actually could even, even have jurisdiction to decide this case. Um, and the court decided that it did. And then when it came back around to the Supreme Court the second time, the question before the court was, who has the authority to recognize foreign sovereigns? Is that a power that belongs exclusively to the president and to the executive branch, or is that a shared power between Congress and the president? And we were arguing that it was a shared power, that Congress had the authority to enact this law, because throughout history you could see the presidents never treated this as a, as a power that they held alone. It was sometimes Congress would urge the president, sometimes the president would urge Congress, they'd reach a decision together, and then they would recognize a foreign government. In our, when I argued the case, it seemed fairly clear that everyone, everyone agreed with us that this was uh, a shared power, that you should be able to list this um, on, the, um, on the passports, because even if it wasn't a shared power, what you put on passports some people would argue, we gave a second argument, it doesn't amount to formal recognition, right? We put all sorts of things on passports that aren't the same as a formal recognition of sovereignty. We put a West Bank, oh, and I should say, one important point, the, this, pa this policy of the United States is, was not a neutral policy. It was a policy that would bend over backwards to recognize and accommodate those individuals who believe and hope that someday the Jewish state of Israel will cease to exist. And what do I mean by that? It would bend over backwards to accommodate those people who want to erase Israel from their passport. So let's say you have somebody who was born, for example, in Haifa or in Tel Aviv. So their passport would say Israel. But what if they're opposed to the existence of the state of Israel? If they ask the State Department to remove Israel from the passport, the State Department will acquiesce, and they will take Israel off the passport, and they'll list the city instead, Tel Aviv or Haifa. Is they'll that a policy agree. that's for any other country in the world? So if you're born in London and say, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to be listed as England, will they list London if somebody says that? So, so now, today, they will do that. At the time that our um, case began, it was written, and it's been changed since then, in the Foreign Affairs Manual, and it talked about how um, there are those who are vehemently opposed to, to listing their place of birth as Israel, and therefore 
um, we'll make this accommodation. Now, so how, today... How did, that, how did that get enshrined where that was the case? Who came up with it? How did this get instituted? Uh, well, taking it off, that started very early on to appease those who would be vehemently opposed to listing Israel. They agreed that they would take it off and they would list just the city. But it goes beyond even that, because the general rule is that the current present sovereign is the country that must be listed. And this is true everywhere around the world. So, for instance, I know somebody who was born in Kiev when it was part of the USSR. His U.S. passport lists Ukraine as his place of birth because Kiev is now part of the Ukraine. But when he was born, it wasn't Ukraine. It was USSR. And yet now he's listed as if he's Ukrainian on his passport. There is one exception, though. The United States will go against that general rule for a person who was born before 1948 anywhere in Israel. So if you're born in Tel Aviv or Haifa or Be'er Sheva or Jerusalem before 1948 and you ask, the State Department will list Palestine as your place of birth, even though Palestine is not the current present sovereign over any of those areas. But they will accommodate those individuals and take Israel off the passport. And for somebody born before 1948, will list Palestine as well. Wow, that's right. So that's why in 2002, Congress passed this law, and yet the State Department was refusing to follow it. The State Department so has its own agenda. That's the problem. It's they've, they sometimes don't listen to presidents. They do what they want to do. They have their own separate uh, culture. So before we break, let me ask you this. If somebody... T- was born in Hebron today or Jericho, well, not Jericho, in Hebron or any part of Judea and Samaria, what does it say is the country in the passport today? So if it's in Judea and Samaria, they will list either West Bank or they will list the city of birth. And what happened um, as a result of our lawsuit, which we can continue after the break, is you'll hear what happened after the Supreme Court decided the second Zivotovsky case. Um, and how that changed the course of uh, of the U.S. Policy. recognition over Israel, right, U.S. policy. Father and daughter team are a special guest, Nat Lewin, who has been an advocate of his so many years fought in the Supreme Court for religious liberties, and he, together with his daughter, are in the firm of Lewin and Lewin, and uh, they're fighting, and we're talking about the Zatovsky case, which is, deals with recognition of, of Jerusalem as being part of Israel by our government, and Eliza's also... Uh, been so involved with the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights and the Law, where she's the president of a nonprofit legal, legal advocacy organization that utilizes law to fight anti-Semitism, especially on campus. When we come back, we continue our conversation. We'll also take some of your phone calls. Do you have any questions about what's happening in Israel, Jerusalem? We'll look at anti-Semitism. 212-769-1925 is our number. 212-769-1925. You want to email us. It's a great way to get your questions answered. Zevbrenner at gmail.com. Zevbrenner at gmail.com. We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Our number, by the way, is 212-769-1925, extension 100. We'll be right back. Are you unhappy with your old and unnatural-looking dentures? Do you want to replace your missing teeth with implants that feel strong and healthy? If so, then you should schedule an appointment with Dr. Tomechi. Dr. Tomechi is at the forefront of dental implantology and has been a faculty member of the NYU Department of Periodontics and Implantology for over 14 years. 
He's the founder of Dental Implant Surgical Seminar, or DISS. This is an implant training school for doctors learning implant treatments on live patients while providing free care to underprivileged communities. With Dr. Tometri's use of computer-guided implant placement and 3D imaging, the exact placement of teeth is achieved even before being placed into the patient. Services range from the most difficult cases, such as full mouth implants, sinus lifts, and major bone grafting to a simple, single implant. Sedation services are also available upon request. Come in for your complimentary consult at Dr. Tometri's state-of-the-art office in Astoria, Queens, and obtain the beautiful smile you've always wanted and at a reasonable price. Call today at 718-956-7800. Once again, 718-956-7800. Or visit drtermechi.com for more information. Don't blow a fuse because you're having trouble making a connection with an electrician. Hershey Framowitz and his licensed crew at Safety Electric take pride in responding quickly and safely to all your electrical needs. Whether large or small, private or commercial, Safety Electric is here to service you at prices that are affordable, especially during these trying times. They do new meters, remove violations, new wiring, and camera systems, as well as renovations and 220-volt wiring. Safety Electric is light years ahead of the competition, so for quality work, reasonable prices, and your satisfaction guaranteed, please call 347-645-4321 for a free quote and take charge of all your electrical needs. That's 347-645-4321. Talk line radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. I've gotten really lax at handling my taxes. I was doing just fine, got 1099, now I'm in a panic cause with all of these earnings i may need an attorney before the irs comes and it won't be fun when they audit my return so i picked up the phone call goldberg mccone they can help you too with your w2 1040 schedule a and your 401k and i picked up the phone Schedule A and your 401k. Goldberg McCone. Call Goldberg McCone today. 212-302-9400. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner, and we have the father and daughter team, Nat and Aliza Lewin, and they are champions of civil rights and special ones relating to the Jewish community. We're taking your phone calls at 212-769-1925, 212-769-1925, extension 100. You want to email us, zevbrenner at gmail.com, zevbrenner at gmail.com. Let's go to Stan in Forest Hills. Your question for our guests. Go ahead, Stan. Um, can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Okay, I just want to make sure. I want to uh, ask the counselor, Mr. Lewin, uh, he has made a statement that there is evidence that uh, 
will back up the fact that there has been fraud in the election. Do you know what evidence this is? Because nobody in the last two weeks has anything. It's been bogus. Everything has been thrown out of court. If you have something that you know, please tell us what it is. You seem to think you have something, as did Mr. Giuliani, which he had absolutely nothing except theories and uh, uh, other crazy things. Do you have solid evidence that there has been fraud in the election? You made, please your, tell us. You made your case. I'm going to let them Okay, respond. go ahead. Sure, sure. <clears throat> it's not my job to represent the president. He has lawyers. And Mr. Giuliani, who I respect, who was a fine U.S. attorney and a fine mayor, says that there are a hundred affidavits which have, according to Trump's lawyers, been filed in the lower courts that say that in the middle of the night, uh, 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 these mail-in ballots were delivered surreptitiously to election centers. Now, if that's true, if those affidavits exist, that's the evidence. And I have said, and I said it earlier in this program, Mr. Giuliani or the Trump team should make those affidavits available to the public. If he wants to conceal the names of the affiance, there are very accepted ways of doing that. You give them a phony name, you cover their name in the affidavit. Famous case of Roe v. Wade did not involve somebody whose name was Roe. So is, that, is, that, is that what you uh, so basically what you're saying is if he has something, show it. He's had weeks that the courts have thrown out everything. There has been no evidence. They've talked and they've showed nothing. So what are you talking about? I mean, I'd like to, you know, you're a respected man, but uh, what are you talking? What evidence that they threw something out? There, if, if it has been shown, there has been nothing brought forward in any of these cases, in that some of these states. And nothing has been shown. And the judges, who are Republican as well as them, have thrown them out. They've shown nothing. They, judges say, show me something. Okay, I'm going to let because we have other calls. I'm going to let, sure, I understand. I'm gonna let no respond to you. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I agree that, that that evidence, if Rudy Giuliani has it, as he says he has it, should be made available to the public. I'd like to see it also. But I believe that it exists. Well, you believe it, but the, obviously there is no evidence, or they would have shown well, it. The proof will be in the pudding. It has already been put. The pudding has been already. Or we've it seen ha- all of it. It hasn't all been served. And I guess, Nat, you're also saying that it might end up at the Supreme Court, in which case it's a court of different jurisdiction, which may look differently at some of the facts that the lower courts rejected. That's also possible, right, Nat? All right. Yes. All right. Thank you for your phone call. My pleasure. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Edwin from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling into our show tonight. So, Edwin, it's going to be your turn right now. Go ahead. Yes, what Edwin. Do you think will, what do you think will be the leading uh, issue before the Supreme Court? Well, the leading issue will be the validity of the count of these mail-in ballots. I mean, that's a whole new system. I mean, I grew up believing that you count votes by having people go and come personally and vote. 
if you have a good excuse as to why you can't come personally, you can apply for an absentee ballot. You're going to be out of town, so you apply in advance for an absentee ballot. I have to say, I have to agree with President Trump that by saying you can simply mail in a ballot, you have very substantially changed the nature of the poll, of the, of the election. And I think that the validity and the different standards that we use by different states in terms of permitting these write-in ballots if they were legitimate in any way and whether they were legitimate are issues that a fair finder of fact will have to determine. Anyway, thank you for your question. But a pleasure. He, but here's the issue, Nat, and then I'll go back to Jerusalem. The issue, though, is so you're dealing with elections, which is federal. And yet every state has a different set of rules of what could be accepted, what can't be accepted, when it has to be uh, counted, when it's, who's going to count it. So in order to be fair, shouldn't there be a federal regulations for how elections are conducted on a federal level? I, I think Congress could enact a law. Again, the question is it's got to be consistent with the constitutional provisions regarding elections. But if Congress enacted a law... <clears throat> that said that votes for a presidential election cannot be mail-in votes. I mean, what happens if a state decides it's going to accept telephone votes? So you call in, you give your date of birth and your name, and you can vote by pressing one or two or three. Uh, is that going to be acceptable? Well, send an email, right? Send an email, right. Well, at least an email will identify you probably better than a telephone call. But why can't a state say, oh, we want everybody to vote, so make a telephone call to this number and then state your date of birth and you can vote? I don't think that would be acceptable. Joel writes, uh, Palestine was Britain's name for the British mandate, which historically ceased to exist in 1948 when Israel became a state. Palestine is an English word and has been a generic European name that originated with a Roman name imposed on Jews. Palestine, uh, there's never been any entity Palestine found by any Middle Eastern people. So if Palestine ceased to exist as a state, at least I guess the natural extension from what the listener has written would be why would they, up until recently, why would they list Palestine for somebody born before 1948 when that country doesn't exist anymore? What was I, the logic? I I agree with that. The logic is that they are accommodating those individuals who um, who are not comfortable including Israel on their passport. And so what happened in that case, just to end it, is that the second time around, there were many who thought that we would be victorious. We had everybody on our side. All 100 senators filed an amicus brief in support of our case. Hard to believe that you'd get all 100 senators agreeing on anything nowadays. Then the Senate Legal Counsel's Office, in addition to a whole slew of congressmen, we had the entire Jewish community from right to left, Orthodox, conservative, reform. We had states' attorneys, generals. We had legal scholars, everybody who had filed amicus briefs in support of our position. And yet, at the end of the day, the court ruled against us. And the court held that the President of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns and therefore determined that this law was unconstitutional because the 
they said the Congress was trying to force the executive branch to talk out of two sides of its mouth, basically. And it said that you can't have the executive branch making it appear on passports as if Jerusalem is in Israel by putting Israel on the passport of citizens born in Jerusalem, when at the same time you had a president, this was then during President Obama, who was saying that Jerusalem is not in Israel. You know, one of the examples, not that the court gave, but that happened at the time was when President Obama gave the eulogy for Shimon Peres. Um, when the White House issued a copy of his eulogy, the initial tagline was Mount Herzl, comma, Jerusalem, comma, Israel. And then hours later, the White House issued a corrected version. The only correction was a line strike through the word Israel, suggesting that Mount Herzl, again, the, like the Arlington Cemetery of Israel, which is in a part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's sovereignty since 1948, is that suggesting that, that someday that's not going to be Israel, that today that's not Israel, that that's just Jerusalem? In fact, when I argued the case in the Supreme Court, Justice Sotomayor said to the Solicitor General, she said, demanding that the State Department put Israel on the passport of a citizen born in Jerusalem is asking the State Department to lie. And when I pushed back on that in rebuttal and I said it wasn't a lie, she said to me, it is. She said, it's not Israel, it's Jerusalem. So what happened is, after the court ruled that way, nobody anticipated a president like President Donald Trump, who then turned around and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and recognized the Golan Heights as being in Israel. And as many people may be aware, the knee-jerk reaction of many attorneys to pretty much just about everything that President Trump has done is to run into court, to file for an injunction, to block whatever it is, whether it has to do with immigration, tax, health care issues, how to run his hotel. There are hundreds of lawsuits that have been filed against President Trump. Do you know how many cases there have been challenging President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel or his recognition of the Golan Heights as being in Israel? How many? Zero. Because the Supreme Court in the Zivotofsky case recognized that the President of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. So when President Trump did this, he was exercising a power that the Supreme Court of the United States had already determined was exclusively his. So does that mean that a new president can come in and say, I don't recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? So what it would mean is that a president could come in and could issue his own recognition, although it is highly unlikely. Let's go now first with the Golan Heights. So for a president to undo the recognition of the Golan Heights, and I will tell you that when the president recognized the Golan Heights, they changed the passport um, rules. The passport rules up until then had said that an American citizen born in the Golan Heights had to list Syria as their place of birth on their U.S. passport. Now the passport, the Foreign Affairs Manual, has been changed to say that an American citizen born in the Golan Heights lists Israel as their place of birth. If an American president wanted to change that, they would have to go back to what the prior one was, and they'd have to announce, I recognize Syria as sovereign over the Golan Heights. Unless there is major drastic change on the ground in that part of the world, I do not foresee any president in the near future announcing that Syria is sovereign over the Golan Heights. Um, now, the president and, also recognized Yehuda and Shamron, Judea and Samaria. Does that have any implications for passports, or he didn't go that if far? He, he didn't go that far. If there had not been, when the, when the um, Israelis 
were talking about extending sovereignty over Judea and Samaria. Had they done that, they didn't do that. Had they done that, and had President Trump recognized that, then that would have been the same thing. That would have been the United States recognizing Israel's sovereignty. The truth is, had they done that, so for example, if Israel were to say, even not over all of if Israel were to say, the Gush Etzion block, we are now extending Israel's sovereignty over the Gush Etzion block. Gush Etzion block has been in every single peace negotiation uh, understood to be the area that Israel is going to keep. And so this doesn't impact anything in terms of peace negotiations because this has always been understood as what's going to be in Israel for sure. If they did that and um, the president of the United States recognized that as being in Israel, then if a future president were to come along and say, okay, I now recognize the state of Palestine, the state of Palestine would be everything but what had already been recognized as being in Israel. And what happened with Jerusalem is that President Trump, when he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he said, I'm recognizing that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, but I'm not Meant, I'm not determining the borders of what Jerusalem is going to be. And so what he was really basically doing is saying, I'm putting an end to this wink and a nod to the idea that one day there won't be an Israel and a Jewish Jerusalem as its capital. Right? He was saying, if you want to negotiate about Jerusalem, you can do that. But you can only negotiate about Jerusalem if you start from a place of understanding that there will always be a Jewish homeland of Israel and Jerusalem is its capital. Now go negotiate your borders. That's what he was saying. But what happened as a result of that is that there were career diplomats at the State Department in the legal advisor's office who said, well, we can't change the passport because what if there's somebody born in a part of Jerusalem that they don't think is Israel? We can't automatically put Israel on their passports. And so for three years after the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the State Department still refused to put Israel on the passport of citizens born in Jerusalem. It was as if they were saying to them, sorry, you think you're born in Israel? No, you're stateless. You really have no state. And it wasn't until now, October 30th, that Ambassador David Friedman and Secretary of State Pompeo managed to push through an agreement and an understanding so that those citizens who request it, not only can they list it on their passport, but they can list it on their birth certificate and on their death certificates, which actually those documents include both a city and a country. So those documents list would list Jerusalem, comma, Israel on them. So as of the 29th of October, um, that's possible. And on Major October 30th is when the, the ambassador gave our client, it was actually his 18th birthday, it took 18 years, um, but gave him the very first American passport intentionally listing Israel as the place of birth for a U.S. citizen born in Jerusalem. Fachai, that's where the way to 18. Our guests are father and daughter team, Nat and Eliza Lewin, civil rights attorneys, and they've accomplished quite a bit. When we come back, our final stretch, we'll try to squeeze in one or two more phone calls, 212-769-1925, extension 100, 212-769-1925, extension 100. We're going to be right back. USA Corp. is one of the nation's leading business filing companies with a BBB rating of A+, the Better Business Bureau's highest score. Our mission is to keep it easy and simple while we deal with the complexities of dealing with government bureaucracies. We file corporations, LLCs, LLPs, LPs, sole proprietorship, and partnerships in all 50 states. Even if you are already an established LLC in the state of New York, we are experts in getting you in full compliance with the LLC publishing law. 
Want to protect your company's name, business tag, logo, or slogan with a trademark or copyright registration? Need to patent an invention or a team is on standby to get it done quickly and simply. We also offer corporate kits, registered agent services, DBA-assumed names, amendments, and changes, certified copies, certificates of good standing, and all your other business filing needs. Call USA Corp. today at toll-free 844-USA-CORP. That's 844-USA-CORP or visit us online at usacorpinc.com. That's usacorpinc.com. USA Corp. is your one stop for all your business filing needs. Doing it smart right from the start. Time to squeeze the profits. If you're a business owner, this is for you. It is your birthright to not just survive, but thrive in this and any economic environment through barter. Join thousands of savvy businesses. Visit barterjuice.com to unlock the secret of how the power of barter can help you get dental, legal, jewelry, web, vacations, furniture, and hundreds of thousands of products and services without paying cash. Learn how barter can transform your business and your life. New book, Barter Juice. You can download the free ebook or audiobook. Barter Juice is now also available in Hebrew and Yiddish. Barterjuice.com. We're speaking with David from Sukkot Depot Distributors. David, good to have you back again. Hi, Zev. How are you? Hope all is well. Zev, I got to tell you, you know, I do a lot of marketing, you know, throughout the past few weeks with uh, the Sukkot business. Dealing with you advertising on the radio and the social media blast, the email blast, I've never, ever seen such amazing uh, responses like I'm getting. I mean, instantaneously, you run me a blast, that phone doesn't stop ringing I get the orders, fantastic, great customers, and I really appreciate the effort that you put into this. I mean, the amount of calls that I get and responses, just outstanding. So I really would like to thank you again, Zev. Uh, you know, dealing with your company has been really a pleasure and very fruitful for me. Thank you. Thank you and continued success. We really appreciate it, Zev. Wishing you uh, all the best in all you do. Thank you. And my message to the public is, I urge you all, if you're looking to really promote your business and to get the phone ringing, get the email orders in, use TalkLine Communications. It's the company that speaks for itself. The results are instantaneous. To advertise on the TalkLine network and TalkLine's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. And, of course, please patronize our sponsors. We're back, our final stretch with father and daughter team, Nat and Elisa Lewin. Elisa, you're also president of the Lewis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights under law. Tell us about some of the fights that you're doing to fight anti-Semitism, especially on campus. Sure. Thanks, Ev. Right now we see a spike in anti-Semitism around the globe, but especially on university campuses where students are um, in the crosshairs, not only from you know, the traditional forms of anti-Semitism uh, that people recognize, the swastikas, the white supremacists, but also now in terms of anti-Semitism that labels any student who expresses any kind of support for the Jewish homeland, for Israel, as a, as a racist, as a lover of apartheid, as a settler colonialist. And it, it doesn't matter what that student's position is on, uh, you know, on Netanyahu or the current policies of the government of Israel. If they uh, 
believe in the Jewish homeland, if they're excited that there is an Eretz Israel, that we, um, you know, if they celebrate what I call the Jews' shared ancestry and ethnicity, right, our, our ethnic pride, um, then they're excluded, they're marginalized, they're demonized. And so we've been working to try and educate university administrators and to um, to try and educate the students, too, on how to effectively articulate this so that people understand that what's happening on campus is not viewpoint discrimination. It's not bullying students because of an unpopular political opinion. It's marginalizing and ostracizing Jews on the basis of their ethnic national identity, right? And, uh, and so it really is a form of national origin discrimination that's taking place. And when university administrators realize this, then they realize that they're legally obligated to protect the students from this discrimination. Did the Trump administration help facilitate that definition on campus? Yes, they. Uh, the President Trump issued an executive order uh, a little less than a year ago, which took Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which protects these students, and linked it with the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, making it clear to universities and to actually all the departments, um, all the agencies of the government that provide government funding. So they're covered by Title VI, uh, and the recipients of the government funds are not permitted to discriminate on the basis of race, color, or national origin. So national origin discrimination, as we said, includes would be including this type of discrimination against Jews on the basis of their shared ancestry and ethnicity. So and basically, just like a gay person, you can't um, make him feel uncomfortable because of his origin. You can't discriminate against a Jew but make him feel uncomfortable because he believes in Israel as a supporter of the state of Israel, basically speaking. Right, and it's not just making them uncomfortable. What we see on campuses is actually excluding them. We have campuses where there are clubs and Government, student government committees where they say Zionists are not welcome. In other words, Jews are being pressured to shed their, their sense of Jewish peoplehood, their deep connection to the land of Israel in order to be accepted on campus. And that's we represented the law. a student. Yes, we represented a student at uh, University of Southern California, Rose Rich, who was this, subjected to uh, terrible harassment online and pressured to resign as vice president of student government because she was because she was a Zionist, because wow. she supported Israel. We have a moment left. I just want to ask you, your father a quick question. I know that uh, the Pollard is, Jonathan Pollard is not able to go to Israel. His restrictions were lifted, but it's not the end. There's still some elements of the Pollard case that still have to be adjudicated, right? Or still, still out there that are floating around? Well, as I explained to you, I was asked to represent Jonathan Pollard by his father, after I had also undertaken to represent somebody else in this matter, so I could not, uh, because of that conflict, represent Pollard. This other person's uh, allegations against that other person are still pending in the United States. I want to thank both of you for being with us and for really championing civil rights, especially affecting the Jewish community. Father and daughter team, Nat Lewin, Eliza Lewin, thank you for being with us. Lewin and Lewin, the company. So look forward to having you back and continued success. Thank you very much. And you continued success to you too. And thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Regards to, to, to Ricky and the family. Okay. All right. You heard our show for tonight. Just a reminder that we're with you on. 
WOR Sunday nights, rest of the week, WSNR 620 a.m. Monday through Wednesday, 7 to 9 p.m., Thursday from 7 to 11 p.m., Saturday nights from 9 p.m. till 4 a.m., 24 hours a day, talklinenetwork.com, our 24-hour-a-day listen line, 641-741-0389. We're America's only Jewish radio program on regular broadcast radio on the Internet and digital platforms. Have a wonderful week. Go to our website right now, talklinenetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to TalkLine Communications Network, America's leading Jewish radio and TV network since 1981. This concludes Jewish programming for tonight. For continuous nonstop Jewish broadcasting, please go right now online to TalkLineCommunications.com. For more information on all of TalkLine's Jewish radio and TV shows, please call 212-769-1925 or email info at TalkLineCommunications.com. Talkline's new 24-hour-a-day listen line is 712-770-0534. That's 